This is a download from Ormskirk Christadelphians of one of our Sunday afternoon talks. For more downloads, go to our website, ormskirkchristadelphians.org.uk or join us in person at our meeting room on Moorgate in Ormskirk every Sunday at 1.45pm. We hope you enjoy the talk. Well, it's a privilege to be with you again talking about some of the words of the Lord Jesus. And while that uh, reference, which is our title from the third chapter of John's Gospel, we will come to, our initial Bible reading from the book of Ecclesiastes, chapter 3, is for a purpose of scene setting, which I hope you'll find useful. And we will, in a way, shuffle for a time between uh, this period of time and the time of Jesus himself. So in Ecclesiastes, we're, give or take, about a thousand years before Christ, or 3,000 years ago, if you prefer to stretch your mind like that. And the book of Ecclesiastes opens, acknowledging that the author is the son of King David. So this is Solomon, the wise man, writing about the difference between life in its generality and life with God. And the third chapter of Ecclesiastes is fairly well known, as much as Old Testament passages are well known, because of that uh, poetry, that verse concerning there's a time to do this and there's a time to do that, including the time to love and a time to hate, a time to live and a time to die, and so on. But it's not that introductory poetry that I want us to particularly look at, that just sets the scene for what comes now in those next few verses in Ecclesiastes chapter 3. Would you please look with me at verse 11 where the preacher, as, he's, uh, as is Solomon's nom de plume in this book, addresses what I think is the fundamental issue here. And it's talking about what God has given to the human race he has created and it says that he has made everything beautiful in its time and then depending on which translation of the bible you're reading it then says that he's put something into the hearts of men and women in the authorized king james version it says he's put eternity in their mind, their hearts, or as others, sorry, the world in, in, in their hearts in the AV, and eternity in more modern translations. Now, interestingly, neither of those words of the English language really places where the Hebrew original word is taking us. So if you like, there's a triangulation. Both English translations are, are, are fair in, in their attempt. But if we look at it in detail, I think we can get a real idea of what it is that God 
has given to mankind so that they can understand life, if you like. And, and the Hebrew word, well, tell you what, let, let me go, go back. Uh, as, as many of you will know, there are some nice straight stretches of railway track uh, from Liverpool to Ormskirk. And if you manage to get on a bridge and look down the track, you know what happens. Parallel lines going out into the distance to the, to the eye of the onlooker are getting closer together. Now, a train wouldn't run if that was the case. As we know very well, parallel lines appear to converge, but in fact they stay the same distance apart. And as you gaze into the distance, uh, if your eyesight's good enough, you can see almost to what is known as the vanishing point. Uh, and that's what the Hebrew word is. It's that point on the horizon beyond which you, you can't see because of the limitations not only of our eyesight but of the very nature of the resolution of that distant view and that's what it's talking about hence the Hebrew word is used for world in terms of uh, time earlier, time later and also hence the concept of eternity but that's the point that God has enabled us to understand what's going on not just in that physical example but more importantly in terms of life and there is therefore there a clear hint that there is something about the fact that out there it goes on and on and on in his condemnation of his contemporaries for their lack of faith and far worse than that their dreadful opposition to him Jesus tells them that they will be the subject of criticism, of judgment at the Day of Judgment by that famous character who came to visit King Solomon a thousand years previously, the Queen of Sheba. Why? Because she had heard that this king of God's nation was a very wise man and she came to suss him out and was staggered. Not only at his wisdom, but also at the wonder of his reign and the glory of his kingdom. But because she came and saw and believed, she is adjudged better than those who were listening to Jesus and rejected him. And he says, and behold, a greater than Solomon is here. Solomon was privileged to record that for us so that we might start thinking about what is there beyond. But it's the Lord Jesus who himself now takes up this challenge to explain to us what indeed is beyond there. Let me just stay with the... Um, 
the wise man Solomon as king for a moment, I'm just going to refer you to a verse in the first book of Kings, which of course is one of the historical books of the scriptures recording this time nearly a thousand BC. And and I'm going to 1 Kings chapter 8. And there we find a big chapter, but there's, there's a lot of detail concerning the time when Solomon had built a temple to God and the service of dedication that he and the nation held for that place. It goes on and on and it's an amazing prayer worth reading in its entirety for your own uh, interest. But I just want to point out something from verse 32 to start with. He's talking about those who have sinned and they have to come to confess this before God's altar and Solomon's prayer is verse 32 here in heaven and act and judge your servants condemning the wicked bringing his way on his head and justifying the righteous by giving him according to his righteousness so Solomon is praying that God will act as the equitable, fair, indeed righteous judge and condemn the wicked and justify the righteous. There may be those in modern society, even some of the world's lawmakers, who might say, hear, hear to that. Not sure they achieve it, but that's another matter. If we go to verse 34... He now is dealing with the sins of the whole nation. If, if, if they as a whole have turned against God. We were talking about that earlier in our service this morning. And again, verse 34. Then hear in heaven and forgive the sin of your people Israel and bring them back to the land which you gave to their fathers. And indeed, that's what happened. Indeed, if you look into the record of the prophet Daniel you will find that he realised the time was right and he prayed that very prayer on behalf of the people so they might return to the land and to re-establish the true worship of God in his temple in Jerusalem when the time was right Solomon has set out the pattern and the faithful Daniel enacted it by praying that prayer of forgiveness request and the people did indeed go back to the land so here we have if you like the two sides of the situation one is the need for righteous judgment and condemning the wicked but the other is justifying the righteous and then the extra dimension of the forgiveness of those who repent of the wrong things they have done in the sight of God just one more Old Testament verse for the moment Um, Deuteronomy and chapter 25 is uh, part of the record of Moses recounting uh, to the children of Israel just before they were about to go into the promised land matters of their history how they got to be there and the laws 
and statutes that God had given them to try and not only get them into a coherent society but a society that was focused on their God and obeying him and in Deuteronomy 25 he's referring to the time when they would have a a system of justice set up in the land and he says if there is a dispute between men and they come to court that the judges may judge them and they justify the righteous and condemn the wicked then he goes on to talk about the consequences you can see where Solomon got his ideas from he was picking up what God had established in his law that the correct way for a society to function is for when there is a problem the one who is in the right to be commended and supported and the one who is in the wrong to be condemned indeed the Hebrew word condemn there translating into the English as condemn it just means it's actually just the word wrong so the one who has done wrong must be shown to have done wrong and under the law there were various matters of restitution if you had stolen or uh, been wantonly uh, negligent in your behaviour and so on and once you were found wrong you had to put it right but if you were right you were to be commended and declared righteous now that is a, a basic principle of the way God works and then now fast forwarding one two thousand years to the time of Jesus here is an amazing preacher that was widely acknowledged but those who listened carefully and saw what he was really about recognized that this was indeed the promised one of old God had told them that he would send them variously a prophet like Moses who gave them the law and would send them one who was known as the Messiah the one who would come to help his people to redeem his people and our word Christ is just the developed from the Greek word uh, which is the equivalent of the Hebrew word so Messiah and Christ are, are the same thing and he comes some accepted that he was who he claimed to be and if you look in later in John's gospel from where we're taking our subject you'll find Jesus pointing out that he has a reason to be confident that they should listen to him because you should take the witness of others he says if you just listen to me saying listen to me I'm the one who's right that's nothing but if you look at what I do the miracles I do you will know that this is the hand of God at work and therefore you should listen to me just to illustrate that would you come with me now to the New Testament and to the Gospel of Mark chapter 2 
this has featured in more than one of the Bible talks I've given, both from this uh, place and indeed from other uh, Christophian platforms. And it's not just because it's, it's one of my favourite stories and, and one that I wish a good friend of mine uh, had been able to turn into an animated film because I think it would put it over well. It's actually because it's an important piece of Jesus' teaching. So although it's wrapped up in, 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 in exciting language, which I know my, my granddaughter loves, um, let, let's just look at the substance as well. This is the occasion, if you look in, in Mark chapter 2, when four men carried a paralysed man to meet Jesus so he could be healed. The problem was they couldn't get in because there was such a crowd there. The reason, if you look in the other gospel records, is because so many of the Jewish leaders had come to the side of the Sea of Galilee, to the town of Capernaum that day, um, that they were indeed crowding in. They'd come at this early stage of his ministry to suss out what Jesus was up to. And so there was no room for these good friends to bring their paralyzed friend to be healed by Jesus. And in this amazing development, they go up on the roof, rip the uh, first century Middle Eastern roof open and let down their friend on the pallet. And uh, I rather like the idea, as I say, of an animated film which would see the pompous robed leaders of the Jews covered in dust, choking and wondering what was going on. Jesus, unperturbed, saw the need of the man, the faithfulness and dedication of his friends, and, again, funnily enough, probably working on a cue from that same chapter of the prophet Daniel, realised that the issue of the day was forgiveness. Daniel had prayed for forgiveness, as Solomon's prayer at the opening of the temple had indicated he should. And Jesus knew that this was the big issue that he needed to address. Not just with the individuals who needed forgiveness, but with the leaders who were preaching a wrong version of God's message to them. And so he links, even before we get to the later part in, in John's Gospel, where he challenges them to look back at what he has done. Now he links in this story the forgiveness of sins. Verse 5. This is just early on. Mark chapter 2, verse 5. When Jesus saw their faith, he said to the paralytic, Son, your sins are forgiven you. And these dust-covered Pharisees, Sadducees, and experts on the law of Moses choked even more when they heard an ordinary man talking about forgiveness of sins. And I suggest one reason for that. Apart from the sheer audacity for a man to talk about being able to forgive sins, and in a way they were right. If you go back to Solomon's prayer, it was always turning to God and asking for forgiveness, wasn't it? But this man had the audacity to say that he could say to an individual, your sins are forgiven. That wasn't the way in Judaism at the time. Forgiveness of sins was an annual, brackets, Stephen would say, tick box style exercise, in which they gathered 
there was a ceremony the scapegoat was sent off and the sins of the people were forgiven for another year now how easy is that we follow the law and the nation's okay that only works if the nation is faithful to God and he accepts their repentance but here was his son not on the day of atonement but on any old day when somebody came to him saying that he could forgive his sins and demonstrated that he had the authority to say that by performing a miracle a miracle of healing a paralyzed man who got up rolled up his uh, pallet and walked out of the house he was healed but he was also forgiven and just as in John chapter 5 Jesus was linking his authority from God to do wonderful things and to say wonderful things and the one the demonstration of God's power in healing and so on justified his claim that they should listen to him And now Jesus had brought forgiveness of sins to the top of the agenda. And therefore when he is talking in our text chapter, John chapter 3, to Nicodemus, who was probably the lead teacher of such matters in Israel, he tries to explain it to this senior cleric we might call him interestingly because of a change of dates I now am giving this subject this afternoon having spoken last year on the previous verse so let's just focus now on verse 17 God did not send his son into the world to condemn the world but that the world through him might be saved and that's the option choice it's rather like what we'd seen in the law of Moses and in the prayer of Solomon the option was justification for the righteous as against condemnation for the wicked making it clear that the wicked was wrong and so God didn't send Jesus just to make the point that people were astray from his ways and to declare them as being wrong that was a necessary part of the process you might say he sent to Jesus so that he might go beyond that and Whoa. <laughs> they are equivalently massive thoughts at the end of these two verses one is talking about having everlasting life and the other is being part of a world that is saved that is what Christ was about that is what Jesus came to do that is why he at every possible moment referred back to their scriptures whether to Solomon or to Moses 
or to the prophets to make the point that what God was about he was now fulfilling by sending his son God as Solomon realised and taught us from Ecclesiastes chapter 3 understands what man needs so that he might believe God has given us the capability of understanding the vanishing point that the world was created that the world is carrying on and that there is a thing called eternity eternal life everlasting life these verses talk about that is what God has enabled us to grapple with that concept and Jesus came to make it a reality and this dichotomy this, this complete split between justifying the righteous and making it clear that wickedness is wrong and condemning it is absolutely vital God doesn't pussyfoot around as we might say and sadly those who think that they can adjust God's principles a bit to suit them will find that they are sadly wrong God has not only given us the capability of understanding and elsewhere in the Old Testament that word that talks about the vanishing point how far can you see is the word that's used in the common way for the word forever the things that God has established in the law of Moses and they had to keep forever and many other verses you can find so God has given us the ability to understand what forever means but there is a problem and it's called death a time to live and a time to die said the wise man and he was contrasting what he saw around him in terms of those who just lived life and it wasn't that great and those who understood what life was about and turned to God and it transformed even this mortal existence of ours and Jesus preached that same message to those who heard him and in particular he was overjoyed when some received the message and followed him and believed him God's intention to save the world to not condemn it is of course something that we can see right through the Christian gospel and could be itself a theme for several talks would you come with me though just to one chapter of the New Testament in the writings of the Apostle Paul for an example that I think makes the point for us it's Romans chapter 4 
while you're turning to the book of Romans, let me just, just remind you that there had been major crises in the relationship between God the creator and his human race creation before. There was the massive one at the time of Noah when we are told that God effectively we are told that God regretted making man and putting him on the earth isn't that awful that so wicked was the world of Noah's day that God wished they weren't there and whether it's just the recent news however you've picked it up this week of, of this that and the other that is awful across the world and rotten in our own society and unaddressed by so many whether it is that that saddens you or, or, or the broader picture of mankind through his history isn't it terrible uh, this morning in our service I, I mentioned that verse from the prophet Jeremiah where God said things had got so bad that even if those two greats of the Old Testament, Moses and Samuel, were there pleading with God, it was too late. They were too far gone. Men who had guided the people through pivotal change in their history. No, they couldn't make a difference. But now comes Jesus. And he can make a difference. And I hate to use the word, but the mechanics of it, the logic, the reasoning, the explanation of it, it, it is really well handled uh, if you can uh, get through a detailed study of what Paul says in the Epistle to the Romans. And he starts off chapter 4 by talking about the father of the Jewish nation, Abraham. And he describes him as being accounted righteous not because of his works. He was not justified by works. Because if he'd done good things. And God had patted him on the back and said. Oh good man Abraham. Then Abraham would have been able to say. Mm, yeah thank you God. I, I did do rather well didn't I. No it's not that. It's not what we do. Trying to prove the point. Trying to be right that way. It's the fact that he believed God that means that Abraham was accounted righteous. And such was the faith of the man Abraham that the middle verse of this chapter contains what I think if you were coming to this, and maybe some of you are, coming to this for the first time is a stop and go back and what did I just read moment L let me try it on you the promise that he would be heir of the world was not the what the promise that he would inherit the world inherit the world yes you, you, you did read it right that's what Abraham's inheritance was according to Paul's analysis of what God had promised it wasn't through the law of Moses, but it was through the righteousness of faith. 
And that is where the battle lines are drawn. Do we think that we can please God by doing things? Is being good good enough for God? Why did Jesus come? He came not to condemn, not to declare wrong the world, but to save it. And, as we've woven in, to declare people who are so righteous. And that's a term that can't be applied to people without God's say-so. Because our human nature is not of that ilk. We cannot be righteous by ourselves. We cannot be right with God. We cannot manage to live a life of perfection. Jesus did. We can't. That's why he is the one who has come to save the world. The last half of this chapter carries on developing the theme of why it was Abraham's faith that made God declare him righteous. The word accounted, imputed, depends what version you're reading, doesn't matter. It's actually an accounting word. It's a counting word. It's as simple as that. It's a counting word. God counts up, and sadly, we would all have to admit there are things in our lives that God can count that would weigh rather heavily on the negative side of the balance sheet of our life. And the sum total of our life, because of the sin that separates us from God, would come out sadly, well, different for some, different for others, but heavily negative, shall we say. What happens? What happens? Well, in Abram's case, he was in what was potentially a very negative situation. God had made these wonderful promises to him. But he needed a son and heir to carry on his line for that wonderful promise of descendants and so on from whom would come this saviour to be true. And he hadn't got any children. And Abraham was reasoning in his mind. It's Genesis chapter 15 if you want to just follow it up. Abraham was reasoning in his mind how God might achieve this. Some of us might try to do that. We, we, we try to second guess how God might do something it, it, it's very wise to try and learn God's ways but we can't actually second guess what he does and so because it was so important God appears to Abraham in this vision and says actually my words need don't worry Abraham not that way you are actually going to have your own son and that's how it's going to come about in fact he says come here stand outside the tent and look up. No light pollution. Count the stars. That's how many de- That's how many descendants. My personal opinion is that Abraham didn't start counting. That scene of innumerable stars in the dark night sky hit Abraham in his mind and his heart and he says, it says, the scripture says, 
he believed God and that's where this phrase come in and he counted it to him for righteousness so it's not because we achieve righteousness but because of our belief in what God has promised and said that we get counted righteous and God blots out the negative side of our balance sheet and we're written down as righteous phenomenal only the divine mind could have come up with such a way of saving the world and that's what Jesus came to do and the link in all this comes at the end of Romans chapter 4 Paul has gone on and on and on bless him about Abraham we're talking about thousands of years ago okay Abraham had lots of children they're still around even though Hitler tried to exterminate the Jews they're still around but that's not the point the point is that out of all those children there was going to be one if you want to look that up it's Galatians chapter 3 there was one and so Paul having gone on about this and, and laid the, the philosophy the, the uh, explanation in terms of logic in terms of what is being accounted here goes on and says that Abraham didn't waver if you like at the promise because he didn't believe but he was strengthened in faith giving glory to God that's what Abraham did he said that, that's wonderful Lord and he was happy to believe him fully convinced says one English version that what God had promised he would do and therefore it was counted to him for righteousness Abraham accepted wholeheartedly that God could do what he said that is the challenge for us today Jesus said that he didn't come to make it clear who was wrong and condemn the wicked he came to save the world and Paul ends off this letter this portion of the letter by saying this Romans 4 verse 23 now it wasn't written for his sake alone this accounting process but also for us it'll be counted to us who believe in him that's God who believe in him who raised up Jesus our Lord from the dead that's what God is challenging us to believe not that we'll have zillions of descendants but that coming up 2000 years ago he sent his son who said that he had come to save the world and not to condemn it and to achieve that he went to the cross and died even though he hadn't sinned he was a perfect man he did not deserve to die in that sense are you willing to believe that no night sky no massive array of stars but if you think of that as a black sky 
and white stars. And instead you look at a white page and black printing, you can find just as much reassurance from the almighty creator as Abraham could find in that vision above him. And he concludes this chapter by describing further what Jesus did. He was delivered up because of our offences. So that's what happened to the condemnation bit. We are wrong. And it was because the human race is wrong that Jesus went to the cross. Thank God that is not the end of the story. Jesus was raised from the dead for our justification. And that's where this righteousness comes in. This promise of God that we can be counted righteous and part of the world he has set out to save by sending his son. You see, we can see beyond the humanly limited vanishing point. Quite simply because God sent his son. And not only did Jesus achieve what God wanted him to in living a sinless life, in allowing himself to be put to death and by the mercy of God being raised from the dead to be the first one to receive eternal life. But more than that, Jesus expanded on Solomon's writing in a way that only that man in that situation could. And he has actually shown us in a very personal way what lies beyond the vanishing point. Jesus has actually shown us what forever means. We hope you enjoyed that talk. For more downloads, information about what we believe and details of our meeting times, go to our website, ormskirkchristadelphians.org.uk. Christadelphians.org.uk